Would you stand with me today as we read from the Gospel of John? Starting there in the second chapter with the first verse, this is what John records. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I know that many of you have heard this story many times before. It's often referred to in wedding ceremonies. But I don't think you can read this story without taking some lessons away from it. Most of the time, we're just amazed at this miracle about turning water into wine. Somehow that gravitates to our priority. Ooh, great, wine. But that's not really the essence of this story in any way, shape, or form. You first have to consider where it was. It was a village wedding feast, a festive occasion, especially in a very poor, dusty region of Judea. It was a joyous event. All weddings should be joyous events. And the ceremony itself was preceded by a huge feast because the vows were usually taken late in the evening. And afterward, the couple would would lead a winding trek through the town by the light of flaming torches with a canopy over their head, and they allowed all the townspeople the opportunity to come out and wish them good wishes. We should have done that with Jeff and Sam here in Danville. We could have done it with, who is she? Oh, yeah, Griffin and Sean. I kept saying Sean. Okay. Sean and Griff, we could have done that. Could have walked them all the way through Danville, and everybody could have participated in the wedding. And then for another week or so, the newlyweds would host an open house, and they would wear crowns and dress in bridal robes, and they would be treated like a king and a queen because a wedding was a special, joyous occasion. At this specific wedding in Cana of Galilee, it's about four and a half miles from the city of Nazareth. There is no doubt that there were wonderful festivities, and Jesus' mother Mary was there with the participants. Maybe there were relatives of Mary there. Maybe even Mary had something to do with the wedding itself. Maybe she was a wedding planner. I don't know. But at least they were very good friends. And Jesus was invited. His disciples were there. Everybody was having a great time until what? 
the wine ran out. Now, for some of you, that's no big deal. But in the Middle East, at a Jewish wedding, the wine never runs out. It is an insult to the guest. The hospitality in the Middle East is extremely important, and it would be a terrible humiliation to the bridal couple if the wine ever ran out. We didn't have wedding cakes. We had wine. Now, of course, you know that in those days, wine was the drink of choice out of necessity, mainly because the water was not pure enough to drink. But the wine was like two parts wine and three parts water. So it was a very tame, a very sweet wine, certainly by today's standards. And drunkenness was uncommon, especially socially condemned. But Mary, Jesus' mother, whether she was the hostess or the wedding planner or whatever, she didn't want any embarrassment to come to the kids. She didn't want any embarrassment to come to the family. So Mary did the very first thing that all of us should do when we face a problem. She turned to Jesus. She turned to Jesus. And that's lesson one today. Tell him what your problems are. Tell him your problem. I know that sounds rather simple. You probably say, I do that all the time, do you? Let's be honest. Don't we usually do just the opposite? We don't take our problems first to Jesus. We usually say, take them on ourselves, or we, we magnify them on our spouse or the job or whatever. Don't we have a tendency to turn to everybody else before we turn to Jesus Christ? It's a great lesson there. God wants to hear your problems. I know some of you are saying, well, God already knows my problems. That's right. But he wants to hear from each and every one of you. He wants you to communicate. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. So Mary turns to her son, Jesus, and trusts that he would know exactly what to do. Now, some people get caught up in this response of, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus obviously didn't believe this was the time for him to reveal who he was or what his glory was all about. But I don't want you to lose the big picture in this story because that's lesson number two. If it matters to you, it matters to Jesus. If you've got a problem you want to share that matters to you, it matters to Jesus. That's something each and every one of us should be about every day of the week. What matters to me matters to Jesus. What matters to you matters to Jesus. Now, I know some of you are here saying, well, yeah, I realize that. The big stuff, cancer, bankruptcy, divorce. No. No. Jesus also cares about grouchy bosses, flat tires, lost dogs, broken dishes, late flights, toothaches, and ruptured discs. You got a problem? You take it to Jesus because what matters to you matters to Jesus. Why do you think he did this first miracle? Why do you think Jesus turned water into wine? The people there didn't know it was a miracle. People didn't even know what was going on. The stewards didn't even know. They just filled everything to the brim. It was only after it was tasted did they understand, did anybody understand that there was a miracle It was wine, good wine. Did Jesus do this because he had to? No. 
Did he do it because his reputation as the Messiah was on the line? No. Did he do it because he was the Son of God? No. Did he do it because he had to do it? No. Matter of fact, he didn't want to do it. He did it because it mattered to his mother. And therefore, it mattered to him. And he didn't want to embarrass this bride and this groom any more than anyone else wanted to. And so Mary tells the servants, you do whatever he wants you to do. And there goes lesson number three. Not only do you tell him your problem, and not only do you know that it matters to him, but now what? Do whatever he tells you to do. Listen to Jesus Christ and do what he tells you to do. You know, the six big jars, the water jugs, these things are humongous, folks. 20, 30 gallons. Purification water was used to clean people's feet when they came in off the dusty roads. It was used to clean hands. I can see us having one of these out here and using it to clean our feet and clean our hands and then say, hey, let's make wine. Uh uh. Nope. Not happening. But it happened there. Jesus turns to the servants. He says, fill the jars with water and then take it to the master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet. No one realized that it was wine. No one even had the faintest idea where it came from. And the master of the banquet calls to the bridegroom and gives him the compliment above all compliments. Everyone brings out the good wine first. But you, you've saved the best for last. The best for last. And then John brings it all together in the 11th verse by saying these words, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. And he did it to reveal his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It was the first of many miracles that Jesus Christ would perform. Now, some of you are probably out there going, I wonder if it really happened the way it said it happened. Did it really come down this way? Did this miracle really occur the way John wrote it? You know, the New Testament in the Gospel, we've got about 35 miracles altogether that are recorded. More than half of them talk about healing the sick, whether it's blindness or deafness or the issue of blood or the paralytic. Some others are about casting out demons or having mental, or curing mental disorders, changing water into wine like here in Cana, or feeding a great crowd from a happy meal, walking on water, calming the storm. Lots of miracles. And we all say, did it really happen that way? Did it really occur? Well, I need to tell you that I have no doubt that it occurred. Because as Christians, you got to take the whole Bible or none of it at all. You're not going to piecemeal it. You're not going to section it off. You're not going to go chapter by chapter. It's either all true or none of it's true. Either Jesus Christ rose from the dead or he didn't raise from the dead. We're not doing 75%. We're not grading on the curve here. The question some of you may be asking is, do you really believe miracles happen now? Did they happen then? Did they happen now? I said, yes, they happen now. It's not sleight of hand. It's not some magician. Not a bunch of smoke and mirrors. They happen. The question I need to ask you is, do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Do you have hearts with which to feel? 
You've heard me say it many times before, I don't believe in consequences, but I do believe in God-sequences because I believe God's touch is throughout His creation. His touch is in my life and in your life and the lives that we touch together. And I see miracles with eyes of faith. That's the only way I can really see them. God's fingerprints are all over, but you have to have eyes with which to see. Now, some of you are going to say, well, give me a couple of examples. We I'll give you a couple of examples that have happened recently. Do you remember that uh, wild boars soccer team, Thailand? Remember they had gone into the cave back in June of last year, and the floodwaters had trapped them, and there were kids in there? from I think about 11 through 16. And they were in that cave for 18 days with nothing but water. And most people feared that they would drown. They didn't lose one. Now, you're going to say that's a coincidence? Okay. How about the man running a marathon? Matter of fact, his 15th marathon. And suddenly he feels a tightness in his chest. He can't breathe And about mile marker 15, he falls flat on his face in the middle of heart failure. He just happens to fall in front of an assisted living facility that has one of those electronic defibrillators. And they're able to get one and bring it out. At mile 15 and a half, he would have been dead. But at mile 15, somebody got the AED and were able to save his life. And I'll tell you the one I like more than anything else, and it's simply because I'm a pilot, and I've been there, and I have flown. How many years ago has it been since we've had Miracle on the Hudson, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, piloted by none other than Captain Sullenberger? Folks, I can't begin to tell you what kind of miracle that is when you dead stick an aircraft missing the George Washington Bridge by 900 feet into the icy waters of the Hudson, and you don't lose one person. You don't think God's fingerprints were there? If you call that a coincidence, I tell you what, let's drive a VW bus through a junkyard and hope for a 747 on the other side. That's a miracle, folks. That's God's touch. You don't do it. You don't dead stick an airplane in the Hudson and have 155 people walk away. I believe in miracles. And I also understand they have a purpose. So what's the purpose of a miracle? What was the purpose of the miracle in Canaan of Galilee? Was it to prove that Jesus Christ was a magician? That he was using sleight of hand? That he was going to do smoke and mirrors? Was that the purpose? No. The purpose of that miracle is to reveal God's love, God's purpose, and God's power. It gives us a glimpse into God's heart. When God performs miracles in our life, we get to see the innermost workings of who God is and what God is about. We see the grace and the love and the kindness that is God. The miracles performed by Christ were performed so people would believe that he was who he said he was, and that was the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, Jesus did this and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I could do a whole sermon on the fact that here at the beginning they believed in him, but how many times did they doubt him along the way? How many times did they falter and fall? How many times did they get segued someplace else? So that's why we have the miracles, so that we might believe that he is Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because that's how John wants us to respond, that Jesus is the Christ. So that's the first thing I want you to learn. The second thing I want you to learn is that miracles are fleeting. Fleeting. They are limited. When Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, that was a great day. That was a miracle. But as best we know, Lazarus died again. When Jesus fed the 5,000, chances are they all got hungry the next day. Miracles are limited. They're fleeting. They're meant to be that way. They're not, to, they're not to stay forever. Miracles don't save us. Christ saves us. When it comes to miracles, the one thing we need to remember is there's a big difference between healing and a cure. A cure is a temporary solution. A healing is an eternal solution. A cure is a physical response. A healing is a spiritual response. A cure doesn't last. It's temporary. It's fleeting. A healing lasts forever. And folks, if I have my choice, give me one or the other, I'll take a healing every time. Because it prepares me to deal with all the situations and circumstances in this life. I'd love to have a cure, but I'll take a healing. Because a healing lasts. The true miracle that we live in our lives is that Jesus Christ has come into our lives and transformed us. He has changed us. That is the miracle. Some of you will ask, do miracles still occur today? Are they still going on? I, I gave you a couple of examples. But you know, there are a lot of examples that are a lot closer to you. They're a lot closer at home. You don't have to fly on U.S. Airways and try to dead stick an airplane on the Hudson to experience a miracle. There are a lot of things that you experience day to day. God didn't say, you know, I'm going to perform miracles for just such and such a time, then I'm going to stop altogether. He didn't say that. Because he's always moving amongst us. He's always about transforming us. You know, in our culture today, in our society, we have a tendency to place events in two categories. Natural and supernatural. Natural and supernatural. If we can explain something scientifically, it ain't a miracle. Really? 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 If God's power is behind it, it's a miracle. Doctors can explain to you the process of childbirth, but I don't know whether there's a mother sitting out here in this congregation who hasn't had a child, who wouldn't call it a miracle. Because it is. Bringing a new life into this world and nurturing that life is a miracle. All of you taking a breath right now? That's a miracle. Do all of you have eyes to see and some of you ears to hear? That's a miracle. Did you get out of bed today even though it was snowing? That's a miracle. 
You may think it's just happenstance. You may think it's a coincidence, but it's not. The lives that we live and the creation in which we live is a miracle. And God's fingerprints are everywhere. I know there are some among you that say, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. I want God to change me. I've got a disease. I need money. I want Him to alter an impossible event in my life. I need a miracle. And I believe that God can perform those miracles. But I cannot explain to you why miracles happen someplace and don't happen someplace else. I cannot explain to you why some people are cured miraculously and some are not. It all goes back to the beginning that I have to trust in God that He will do what He needs to do. We just prayed a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. The one who created all these miracles is still in control. And His will will be done. I believe we should pray for those miracles. We should never stop praying. We should never try to limit God. Because I think God will respond to our problems. But always in accordance to His will. Heaven knows. As a people. As a country. As a world. We desperately need miracles. And we are ever so lucky. We are ever so fortunate that God is still in the miracle business. Believe. 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 Would you bow your heads with me, please?